Hello and welcome to another weekly podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. If you're in the Mankato area, join us every Sunday morning at 10.15 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to learn more, visit us at MankatoHilltop.org. Best of all, God is with us. We are in Matthew uh, chapter 5. We're going to pick it up right after where uh, Katie left off last week. So here we are in verse 27. And uh, last week, if you were here, Katie, many preached, and she's like, oh, you give me a difficult passage. Okay, well, you ready for another one? (laughs) Here we go, Katie. All right, starting verse 27. Jesus speaking to the disciples and those gathered there, he says, you have heard that it was said, "You you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of unchastity, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. May God add a blessing to the reading, hearing, and understanding of Holy Scripture. So each week we are taking this Sermon on the Mount and breaking it down into little chunks to kind of see what Jesus' teaching is. And we started off by looking at the Beatitudes several weeks ago on Easter and blessed are the poor and blessed are the merciful and things like that. Jesus kind of lays out who the blessed are. Then he comes and says, you're salt and light. You, all of us here, the people gathered, they are salt and light. Then he says... I'm not coming to replace all the prophets and all the law. I'm coming to fulfill them. And then last week when Katie preached while I was gone, he said a few of the law things. Oh, you've heard it said, don't be angry with the brother. Or don't commit murder. But so then, Katie, good job. Thanks for preaching on forgiveness. That was awesome. I appreciate that. And now we get to this other teaching. Whew. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I win. Thank you. So we're going to get into this, and, I'll, and, and we'll, go, we'll get into it in just a little bit. But before we jump into it, um, I want to know how many people here, I'm just curious. I've been asking this question to everybody I meet. How often do you use artificial intelligence at your job? Anyone, has, has anyone ever used artificial intelligence at their job? Okay. Not very many hands. I have a sense that in a little bit of time, most people who are working will be like, yep, I'm using artificial intelligence all the time. You've heard about some of this stuff before. Chat GPT, you ever heard of that? That's artificial intelligence. Google Bard, that's another one. There's all of these software companies that are making these artificial intelligence programs to help us. Now, I was away last week at a conference. And thank you so much for giving me that time away. Thank you, Katie, for preaching. And, you know, uh, it's hard for you to understand, like, 
No, I was working. I was having some fun in New York, but I was also going to a conference. One of the wonderful things there was I got to plan some sermon series. I got to listen to some great talks, and it was a continuing education event for me, so I really felt like I'm coming back now with a brain full of things. And one of those things is, what's artificial intelligence going to do to our world? I've been asking people since before I left for the conference and since I got back from the conference, and more and more people say either A, yep, I'm using artificial intelligence in my job, B, I've heard about this and I probably should be doing it, but I'm not sure, or C, the end of the world is coming, be ready. <laughs> the robot apocalypse is upon us. Actually, artificial intelligence has been around for a long time. And it's just becoming more ubiquitous. And it's something that plays into the role of more and more of everyday life. So your pastor uses artificial intelligence. I have not had the artificial intelligence write a sermon yet. I don't know that I ever will. Actually, I tried it out, but it was not a very good sermon. So I was like, nah, you don't want to hear the artificial intelligence sermon. Robots don't know how to preach. But I do use it on a daily basis, trying to find information, trying to look for things. Right off in the artificial intelligence, it spits out the answer. You're like, whoa, that's creepy. How does it know? How does it? And it knows all kinds of interesting things. But if you are on social media, you have been using artificial intelligence for a very long time now. And those on Snapchat, a few people here on Snapchat, and then grandma and grandpas are like, oh yeah, I have to do that thing to connect with my grandkids, the Snapchat thing. Artificial intelligence can change your features, right? Like this. I just did a few of them this morning. You've seen some of these before, right? If you've been on, Artif if you've been on Snapchat, you've seen how this works. Here's another one. I wanted, to, I wanted to fit in with the farmers. They're getting out in the field. I don't know, I'm gonna grow a beard and mustache there. Does that, does that even look like me? <laughs> Not really, right? Of course, I could look younger. <laughs> I mean, I could even play the role of a different gender if I wanted to. I don't know, that's too creepy. And of course, some of them are just plain fun. That's not my real tongue, by the way. I'm smiling into the camera. The artificial intelligence knows how to change it to give it that look. But see, it's a real issue because anyone who is online now can change your features automatically. It can make you look younger and prettier without you doing anything. And then you start to be like, wait a minute, what's real? When the pandemic shut down and we all went on to Zoom meetings, some of you got onto Zoom and you're like, hey, look at this. You know what I did? I downloaded a Zoom filter, the very first thing I did. And it's like, do you want it to enhance your appearance? I'm like, yes, please. Give me the enhanced appearance while I sit in this Zoom meeting. And then after the meeting, people will be like, Pastor, your eyes were so blue. It's because they highlighted the blue eyes for me. Those were not my real blue eyes. I mean, I have blue eyes, but I knew how to adjust it to make it look just right. Get rid of the blemishes. And then you start to go like, wait, what's real here? 
is all of this face tune real? It's happening. So if you're under the age of 25, you're like, duh, I've been doing this for 10 years already. And the rest of us are now kind of like getting caught up to it and being like, this is a real thing. What's really driving that? What's really driving the impetus behind our actions to look better? I might argue it's some innate, uh, maybe it's not innate, but something culturally or socially that says, you got to look good in front of the camera. But where does that come from? In some ways, it's not even real. It's fake. So why do we put up all of these false images of who we really are? To somehow make ourselves feel better about ourselves? Maybe. Or to get other people to like us or to desire us more? And I'm not necessarily talking in like a sexual way. I'm just saying, you know, oh, look at that. Isn't that a wonderful, beautiful person? Wouldn't I like to get to know them better? And I think we're probably all guilty of it. I can't speak to everybody, but Jesus can. I think that's kind of the point behind his teaching here today is to help us understand just how much this desire is innate in all of us in our world. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, he's kind of like a new Moses. Moses from the Old Testament goes up to Mount Horeb, gets the laws of God, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Those kind of things. Brings those down to the Israelite people. And here on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is kind of doing the same thing. He references those laws. Hey, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. Where did you hear that said? Oh, it was in the Ten Commandments. But then he takes the law to its highest point. Because you can imagine some people being like, yeah, I haven't committed adultery. Look at me. Look at how good it's going. And he's like, oh, but if you've ever looked at someone else with lust, that's the same thing as committing adultery. It is? Yeah. That impulse on the inside, that's the same impulse whether you act on it or not. See, the real problem or the root for marital infidelity is lust or desire, some inordinate desire. And then he kind of says, everybody has done that before. Isn't that something? You all have done that before. And you're like, really? How does that affect me? Here's, here's one of the ways I, I remember this affecting uh, me. Um, when you go to a parenting class, there's one thing that they say over and over and over again. So some of you who will be parents, you'll go to this. And when you did a parenting class, whether it was five, ten years ago or a long time ago, Maggie just did one probably because she just had a baby. What do they say over and over? Don't shake the baby. And you're like, of course. I'm not going to shake the baby. And they say it over and over, and then you're going through your thing, and they're like, don't shake the baby. And you're like, I know, I got it. Don't shake the baby. Got it. And then you have the baby, and you're four months in. You're sleep deprived. You haven't eaten anything except for like a microwave chicken nugget for like two weeks. And the baby wakes up at two o'clock. He's got a full diaper, and he won't go back to bed. And you're like, mmm. 
And then you're like, oh, don't shake the baby. Got it. Because every one of us has a limit where it's just going to go crazy within us. Sometimes that threshold is really far out there, but sometimes it's really thin. And at four o'clock, four months in, at two in the morning, maybe it's really thin. Jesus is trying to go right into the middle of the law that Moses brought to the Israelites and focus in on our intent, the thing that's happening in each of us, the stuff that we say is in our heart, exposing it for what it is, kind of like ripping off the Band-Aid and saying, see, see what's going on here? Might look good on the outside, but inside, things can trigger us and we're just right back into it again. Mm. Actually, I was thinking about this with... uh, when I was listening to Taylor Swift's new song, Antihero. Who's the, who are my Swifties in here? Any Swifties? Okay, couple of Swifties. I love Taylor Swift. Her new album that came out last year, Antihero. Yes. Listen to the lyrics. I'm going to play just a little bit of it here. Now, if you're watching online, we can't play it online. We can't. Did you notice what the chorus is there? I mean, she's radically honest about what's going on inside of her. I think that's one, I mean, other than it's a major, she's a major artist and that's a major hit. She also knows how to speak directly to where we are in a similar way to Jesus. What does she say? It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. In some ways, this is what Jesus is trying to highlight, this radical honesty for our own hearts. We delude ourselves when we're like, Oh, I never, I, I never, I'm never going to murder anybody. But boy, do I get angry at people. I'm, I am never going to cheat on my wife. Oh, but look at that desire that immediately jumps to my heart when I'm not ready. He's trying to take the law to its biggest, highest demand to show that, hey, for everybody... You need saving from this. It's something that's within everyone. Sin, brokenness. Really easy to talk about when it's out there. Look at that other political party. Look at that other city council. Look at that other issue. Look at whatever that is. They're the problem. It's the administration, right? They're the problem. But it's a lot harder when that gets directed back toward us isn't it? There are things within each of us that come out when we least expect it. You know where mine is. I mention it almost every Sunday. Traffic. Mm. (laughs) Going just fine. They cut me off. Mm. Where is it for you? Watching the news, scrolling social media, in traffic for you, whatever. Jesus is talking here in very hyperbolic language to help us understand just how sick we are with sin. How much we need the great physician to come and heal us. We're deluding ourselves if we think we can just do it ourselves. And he's like, okay, try it yourself. Take your eye out. Cut your hand off. 
do something like, speaking hyperbolically here, right? Because guess what? Take my eye out, it doesn't remove the sin. Cut my hand off, it doesn't remove the sin, does it? See, if you're addicted, some of you have been in recovery, you can't just dump the booze down the toilet because there's still something in us, isn't there? That's a very simplistic reading to be like, oh yeah, I can just do this myself. I can just do whatever I can. And you know, he speaks about hands and eyes. What is it for you? Okay, I will be my own savior. I will just cut this part out of my life and then I'll be fine. And it's almost like he's saying, go ahead, try. It doesn't fix the issue, does it? That's not how anything works. We can't be made more righteous by what we do. We could cut off all of our hands, all of our legs, pluck out all of our eyes, be like the Black Knight. You know what I'm talking about? Monty Python? You know? Where his arms and his legs and everything is cut off. And guess what? He's still, he's still fighting. We could be like the Black Knight. And guess what? We still have sin. See, we're not able to do it ourselves. What would it really take to rid our lives of sin. I think this is actually what gets behind some of the things like um, the book bans that make national news these days. In my day, it was uh, burning all your record albums. Take all those ungodly record albums and throw them into the fire and burn it up. These days, it seems to be book bans. Like, gather all the books and ban them so no one can do this. As if we could just remove the items and that would fix everything. That's not how it works. Jesus is trying to show us that's not how it works. We are not able to do this ourselves. In fact, if we were to take it to its logical conclusion... We would probably have to die in order for sin to be removed. We'd have to go all the way to cutting off our heads. Which kind of is what Jesus offers us metaphorically. Because later in the gospel, he says, if you want to be my follower, you have to take up your own cross and follow me. His invitation to us is to die, not physically but metaphorically. Die to what? Die to this sinfulness. Die to how that has infected us. So this isn't necessarily a passage on, hey, don't do bad things. I mean, that's included, but it's way deeper than that. It's more about how do we open our heart so that God can come in Not just stopping the bad things, but transforming us from the inside out. Being radically honest with where we are in this world and where we are with ourselves, and how much we need in that moment when we're radically honest with each other, how much we need God's love and grace to fill us and transform us. Now, this is a very different message than what happens, really, frankly, outside of church. The world's just like, do it yourself. Make it happen. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. If you're not finding happiness or wholeness, just work a little harder. And Jesus is like, 
the playing field is leveled. There isn't any more work you could do to save yourself. And what about this divorce passage? It's kind of like really pointed here talking about no divorce and things like that. First of all, before we jump in and talk a little bit about that, I know there are several people out there who have found healing through divorce because it was a difficult situation you were in. But I have yet to meet someone who says, yeah, divorce was really great. I mean, if there's abuse, it's the lesser of two bad choices. So I don't think Jesus is saying, oh, you need to stay in an abusive relationship. But I think here again, he's trying to point out just how broken we all are and how much we need saving. And I know many, many people happily married in their second marriage or in their second relationship. So the point is not to make people feel bad. Although that's how some preachers and some pastors and some churches have have used this text before. And for that, I'm really sorry. Because that's not what I think Jesus wants you to do. I don't think Jesus is like, how bad can I make them feel? I think he's trying to help us all see just how broken we all can be. Divorce was the result of their hard hearts. And this is simply directed to the men because that's all Jesus would have talked about at the time. The men who had the way of talking about divorce. And in some ways, he puts men and women on an equal footing in his way that he says we all need to care for the women in this. But here again, this is about death. There is a grief and a sadness in divorce. But that's precisely where God works in relationships. So he's almost trying to say like, you know how bad it can get in divorce? There's healing and hope beyond that. In me, there's healing and hope. And by the way, he also just proved the point in a couple of verses earlier that who commits adultery? Everybody does. Everybody does. So in one sense, we are all guilty, whether we're married or not. Here again, the goal is not to judge divorced people. The goal is to show just how devastating we can all be in our relationships. How much lower can it go? Even lower. And when that happens, when we go through a a difficult divorce, we carry around all of that social and emotional capital of our ex-partner. And even when we don't want to, we might still dream about them. Even when we don't want to, their birthday comes up and we're reminded of them. And this is what Jesus offers us, a Savior who can bring healing to everybody. Those who have been divorced, those who have committed adultery, those who are angry. And next week, he'll continue on and talk about more of this to convict us just how much we need saving from this. There is nowhere for anyone to hear these words and think, You know what? I'm doing this way better than those people over there. There's no place in this passage for any of us to think that. That I'm somehow doing better than someone else somewhere else. 
No, the words are meant to convict each of us with an honest appraisal so that we can hear the good news. What is the good news? That Christ so loved the world, you and I, that he sent his son into the world. Why? To heal the world, to save us from this sin. We need that Savior. Each of us need that Savior. Each of us need that saving work, that healing of our heart. All of this is to help us realize the good news of the gospel. How much we need a Savior to save us from sin. That we all need help. That getting out of this mess that the world seems to be in, sometimes a mess that we have helped to create, that we can't just keep struggling to do it ourselves and just keep picking ourselves up and keep making it happen without God on our own. Because we will all fall. But that's precisely when God can enter in. When we are at our lowest point, when we are at our darkest point, when we have hit rock bottom, when we have been strung out on drugs and alcohol, when we've been divorced for the third time, when we have uh, been caught in the midst of adultery, whatever that might be, there's biblical stories of that. That's precisely where Jesus meets us. In the pain, in the heartache, in the brokenness, in the rock bottom of our very nature. Then God comes in and says, are you finally ready to trust me? Are you finally ready to put your grace and love in me? Let me come in. Then Jesus goes from being just a nice life coach to our life, to the friend of sinners, to actually being our savior. This turns people into righteousness. They are made right with God through Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. He can only do that when we are willing to receive that. The justifying work is there. It has happened on the cross. Hallelujah. Amen. He was raised from the dead. It's there. But we sure like to just do it ourselves. I'll just, I'll just work harder. I'll just try harder at this relationship. I'll just try harder not to be mad. How's that going for you? I'll just try, 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 try. And on all of our striving, until we recognize that we need saving, his grace is just right there, ready to be, take, ready to be taken. He can only do this with sinners or people who know that. Not with people who think they're basically good on their own. Which is kind of most people these days, isn't it? There are moments when I feel like that myself. I'm doing pretty good, right God? And then I'll just get smacked upside the head. In some relationship or some issue or some person or something will just trigger me. And then it was a reminder that, oh yeah, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Come and heal my heart yet again, Jesus. So hear the good news. Your sins are forgiven. That's not at issue. Done, accomplished, taken care of on the cross by his love.
Thanks for listening to another podcast from Hilltop United Methodist Church in Mankato, Minnesota. Don't forget to visit us online at MankatoHilltop.org.